It's Thursday, August 7th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Russia retaliates, flips the U.S. the bird. Or at least it's flipping its policy on U.S. birds and meats and cheeses and arugula. As part of escalating tensions between Russia and the West, Vladimir Putin has banned food imports. Food imports from the EU, Australia, Canada, and the U.S., Russia is the United States' second largest market for chickens, although the Russians always mock U.S. chickens as inadequate as compared to the hearty Russian stock. Is Russia playing chicken with the U.S., or is it more like Russian roulette? Some ABC World News Tonight reporter will hope to think of when they report that banning imports will likely hurt the Russian people more than it hurts the West. Well, smaller countries like Denmark, which is Russia's major supplier of foreign beef, will feel the bite. Feel the bite. You could use that too, network news correspondent. The BBC surveyed a bunch of regular Russians about this ban, and they all said, bring it on. Yuri Alexandrov of St. Petersburg, Russia, said, these sanctions mean not much at all. Most day-to-day food can be sourced locally, that's sourced, locally, and most of the time we buy locally produced meat and vegetables anyway. Look, I'm not going to do any more Russian accents. There are those who argue I didn't just do a Russian accent, but I'll quote another guy. Almaz Nizamutinov of Ufa, Russia, did not in fact say Ufa. He said, this will be a stimulus for our farmers to grow more and expand their production of food. I think people will start to grow their own vegetables, apples, and animals for meat in their gardens. Nizam Mutinov very likely did not go on to add, and after forced locavorism, they'll start growing elaborate mustaches and soon adopt intractable opinions about the magnetic fields or TV on the radio. Soon all of Russia will be like Silver Lake or Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and our colorless retrograde fashion will come to be seen as normcore. Thank you, Mr. Putin, for making heroes and hipsters of us all. On the show today, I will spiel about regulating e-cigarettes and other vices that bring us pleasure. But first, I talked to a woman whose most famous book sold about 10 million copies, and whose book that came next sold, well, a lot less. But that's cool, you know? Elizabeth Gilbert is the author of The Signature of All Things and this other book before it, something about eating and praying and loving. Can't really quite remember it. The kind of book where people get so inspired that they tattoo passages on their arms. I swear to God, I met a girl at a wedding who had like a lot of the book on her arm as one would a Bible verse if one were a Christian. So what's it like, Elizabeth, to have started your own tattoo-oriented religion? To have started my own tattoo parlor. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen those, too. Really? Yeah. 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 I always try to think, what words would I have, whose words would I have tattooed on me if I were going to do that? And I... I don't think I would go any lower than Whitman. Like, I, I'd I don't go think, Seuss. I, that, okay, well, I, that's equal to Whitman. Um, but but I, I just feel like, really? Yeah. You know, 
great. I mean, I'm glad that it's inspiring to you, but... Is it usually, when you've seen him, uh, is there one passage that gets tattooed more often than others? There's a word that shows up a lot. There's this word, this Italian word, attraversiamo, that means let's cross over, seems to affect people. They seem to put it on their feet a lot okay. to make it literal, like, you know, yeah. taking the next step into the next thing. Before we started, I was saying that I just heard you on a podcast we, you love and I like called My Brother, My Brother and Me. You were saying that you're not, again, the analogy you made was to John Cougar Mellencamp. <laughs> people show up, they pay 50 bucks and damn it, they want to hear Jack and Diane. And if people want to talk to you about Eat, Pray, Love, you're going to talk about Eat, Pray, Love. Totally. You've I'm not going to make yeah. them listen to my acoustic album. You know, like they didn't come there. Like, And I also just feel like it's, I have this really strong view that it is not the world's fault if you want to be a creative person and it is not the world's responsibility to like everything that you create. And if you're lucky enough that you accidentally once made something that people like, then, you know, give that to them. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to continue to go on writing books, but I just don't expect that everybody's going to have to come along on those journeys with me if they don't want to. That makes um, sense. But if we're in a, you know, if I'm in a public place and people come up to me and they say, I loved your first book, I know they don't mean my small, obscure literary collection of short stories called Pilgrims published in 1994. I know that's not what they're talking about. <laughs> I know that by their first book, they mean the one where I heard about you and um, and the only one I really care about. Your, in other words, your fourth book. You know? yeah. I, love, <laughs> I loved your first book to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to me, it was my You know, first it is book, first yeah. in my heart. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and again, yeah. I'm not going to like, I'm not going to be like, I think you're referring to my fourth book. You know, it just yeah. would be a very obnoxious way to receive um, something that was important to somebody. I sometimes get that idea, like when I'm watching a behind the music or when I see people make fun of maybe a band that had one hit, like The Knack, right? And I say to myself, you know, how many of us had a band in high school or a band in college and we were friends with those guys. And, you know, it was great because we played music and people liked us and we made almost no money and it was great. But if you add a hit single like My Sharona to the experience, now I'm supposed to be embarrassed that I was never <laughs> able to recapture it again. Yeah. I mean, if you had a lot of success, but not this earth shaking, I'll tattoo myself about its success, that would be awesome. And there'd be no controversy and no one would even think that, you know, later books were lesser. No yeah. one would even think that about it. So yeah. why does having the pinnacle take away from, you know, the overall accomplishment? Well, you know, it's... Why it, should it, it I mean. It's weird. And I got schooled on that. I remember when I was working as a diner waitress and I was an aspiring writer and I was 22 and there was this University of Pennsylvania professor who used to come in there who was very erudite and I used to talk to him. And, and we were talking about um, From Here to Eternity by James, help me, somebody, last name. Frank Sinatra. Um, <laughs> yes, by, Frank, by Mr. Frank Sinatra. Oh, my God, I'm I got totally it, I got, drawing I got, I got the internet. It's not that I, I keep know. coming up with James Joyce, and that is, of course, obviously not it. James. James Jones. Jones. That's why you couldn't remember it. It's um, the most anonymous name. Yes, Mr. It's Mr. Mr. James Jones. under a fake name. And name, somehow, yeah. like, in my just obnoxious attitude of being 22... I'd read that book, and somewhere I'd picked up on the fact that that was the only book he ever had that was a hit. And so we mentioned it, and I, I sort of scoffed and said, you know, one-hit wonder or something. <laughs> First of all, the arrogance of, like, a 22-year-old unpublished diner waitress to take on. And he just schooled me so hard on that. And he said, why, why is that a crime? And what is your objection to it? And what have you ever made? And, and like just like one, you know, completely accurate. And I remember just getting smaller and smaller and smaller until I was 
almost as small as I actually was, <laughs> <laughs> you know, instead of like fronting what I thought I was. And I've, I've just never made that mistake again. Um, and he also just said, if you've written one masterpiece, why do you need to write another one? Isn't that enough? Yeah. Like, wouldn't you like to write one masterpiece? It's great for the world if yeah. you can, but you don't. You shouldn't need to. Yeah, and shouldn't you also applaud people who continue to produce work regardless of whether the world loves it? Isn't that, I admire that more than the idea of writing one thing that's a hit and then never doing anything again out of fear that it won't be. I like people who just keep making art, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and, and recognizing, like, put it out there. Let's say we took out Eat, Pray, Love from your oeuvre. Um, with the with the other books, which I mean, you called committed was the next book, right? Mm-hmm. You call that a flop, but was it a flop? Flop? And no, I wish I had had another thirty seconds in that TED yeah. talk to say what I meant, which yeah. was that compared to Eat Pray Love, that's it was, what I'm saying. It yeah. sold one. Okay, here's if you wanted to find a flop, it sold one one thousandth of the copies of Eat Pray Love. However, it sold ten times as much as any book that came, that I'd written before Eat Pray Love, but nobody, do, you know, like does that metric. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, so no, I I mean I didn't I was proud of it. I thought it was the best work I could do, and I was happy that I had uh, that I wrote a book after *Eat Pray Love* that it didn't kill me as yeah. a writer, um, and that in fact writing the book after *Eat Pray Love* was so essential to break the spell of that, so that I could continue to be a writer. But so yeah, I, I know what you're drawing from is in the TED talk where I called it a flop, but it was a shorthand. <laughs> yeah, no, I was wondering about yeah, that outsiders would have honesty it that. in that yeah. uh, perspective. So signature of all things, I want to ask you about quinine. Sure. I love quinine. People just think it's the thing that makes tonic water taste interesting. Oh, it's the but thing it's like that a, made the British Empire work. It's a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. A miracle for a lot of reasons. So it's a historical novel based on the daughter and the uh, father, and the father made his fortune in quinine. Was there a person, was he an American, who made so much money on quinine? No, but there could have been. I mean, there were there were sort of corporations. There were There were people who made money in quinine. There was a guy... Later than my character, who made quite a bit of money, um, uh, he was an American who's, but he was like 20th century because they didn't come up with synthetic malaria drugs until the 20th century. So quinine was a big business for a long, long time. There were a lot of people who made money. There wasn't anybody particularly like my guy who I decided was going to be the mogul. So quinine comes from this bark that uh, grows on a tree in Peru, and it is it was for years the only treatment for malaria, and it was very successful. And the only problem with it is, and the weirdest thing about it is, it grows in an area of the world that doesn't have malaria. So the cure for malaria exists, but on a tree like 5,000 miles away from the nearest case of malaria. It's so strange how the natural world works. And then someone had to piece that to, like, the fact that humans put that together out of all the barks of all the trees in the world that up there in the Andes, there was the cure for one of the great ravages of mankind is amazing. Yeah. And it also says something, it's a little like, that invention was a little like the cotton gin in that it was a great achievement, but the consequence of it, you know, with the cotton gin, they say it prolonged slavery for years and years. And with quinine, it made uh, Africa be something other than what they used to call it, which is the grave of white men. Yeah. I mean, would colonialism even be possible without quinine? You raise a very good point. Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Um, and, and when the Dutch figured out how to do it better than the English did, they were able to go wreak havoc in the South Pacific in a way that you know, had some serious consequences for some very old cultures. What about that did appeal to you as a uh, as a literary, um, as a thing to use literarily? Well, I kind of... As a literary to... device, I guess, would be the term that I, I'm I think the what, yeah. the what writers call it is a thing to use literarily. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> literally. They literally call it a thing to use. What's that thingy that you use <laughs> literarily? Thing, yeah. um, I, well, what I liked about it is that I, I'm really interested in, I got really interested in the idea of international botanical trade in the um, 18th and 19th centuries. And quinine was great because it was global. It was like one of the, so it enabled my characters to span the entire world. So my character's born in England. He travels the world with Captain Cook, becomes a great botanical explorer, goes to Peru. So that's already a bunch of countries he gets to go to. Mm -hmm. And then goes into cahoots with the Dutch in order to form a corporation to sell the quinine. Then goes over to um, what is essentially, you know, now like the Dutch East Indies in order to... So that takes him over there. And then Philadelphia ended up being the birthplace of the American pharmaceutical industry. And he can settle there and essentially start Big Pharma in 1900 in the U.S. And... And all of that was available through the bark of this one tree. So that worked as a device, um, as a literary, as a thing device. Yeah, it worked to get thing. my character off the dime um, and to get him all over the whole globe, which is the sense that I wanted to bring to the book. And do you drink gin and tonics? I like a gin and tonic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be careful, though, because it's a powerful drug. Gin and or the tonic? Both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess you, the gin's going to get you before the tonic does. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the lasting side effect of quinine still to this day is tinnitus and deafness, um, you know, which is still better than getting malaria. But, but now um, they have better drugs for malaria. And they don't they, even recommend you take They quinine. don't even really still have better. I mean, they don't really. They're kind of it's horrible. not as good as quinine. I mean, they have drugs. They work. But they'll make you lose your mind. Yeah. You know, I think I'd rather have ringing ears. <laughs> and a gin. <laughs> All right, so I want to ask you one more thing because mm -hmm. I'm fascinated in this. And if I ever write a book, the title's either going to be, well, you, I should ask you. You wrote a book that sold many copies. What's a better title? How Not to Be Boring or How to Be Interesting? How Not to Be Boring. I think you're right. So How Not to Be Boring, which is a book I've been thinking of writing, which will include a lot about rhetoric, but I'll also do some stuff on brain science. But I want to ask you that question. And this is the, I know you've spoken on creativity and where creativity comes from. This is the classic open-ended question. What, how do you not be boring? How do I cannot not believe be you just asked me that. That is so weird. Why? Because just this very morning I was thinking about this. Okay. Um, and I was actually thinking about writing something on Facebook about this, about how the only boring people I know are bored people. Mm -hmm. um, That's true. And and I remember um, there was this guy that I was in love with once a long time ago, and and I remember um, he always made me feel like I was really boring, um, and that I was boring him, and that you know like just that I was tedious about <laughs> wasting his time. Anyway, we ended up breaking and breaking up, and, and we spoke months later, um, and he said, you know, I just feel. I just feel really bored now that you're gone. And I remember thinking, man, you were the only person in the world who ever made me feel like I was a boring person. And he's like, the whole world just seems really boring now. I'm like, because you're boring. Because you're boring. <laughs> and you're bored. And nothing interests you. And I'm never bored. How can you be bored? Yeah. Like, what's the matter with you? <laughs> like, everything is fascinating. And, and so I think the only way to not be a boring person is to not be a bored person. To not be, like, too cool to be excited by anything. Or too cynical to embrace or like earnestness um like yeah yeah it's so weird passion i'm not articulating this very well passion but passion is feel the like antidote to boredom there's never you're never going to meet a passionate person who's boring yeah um like even if they're passionate about something that you have no interest even in. if they're passionate about something really boring <laughs> even if they're passionate about something, exactly like i just took my my stepdaughter to this dairy farm um in new jersey last weekend that i've been wanting to go check out and we took this tour and the guy was so passionate about his cheese making process and and i thought it was boring her because um, she's sort of a hipster, my stepdaughter. Mm -hmm. And 
And she just said, it's so cool to meet somebody who loves something as much as this guy loves his cheese. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's what makes a person interesting. So, the, yeah, find something to be passionate about. Actually, there's a great definition, too, of um, there's this poet, Jack Gilbert, no relation to me, who I really love. And I met somebody who met him once, and he defined himself as a romantic, the, the poet. And the interviewer said, how do you def define a romantic? And he said, find something to love and then invest far more of yourself in it than it deserves. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's how you become passionate. That's how you become interesting. And that is certainly the opposite of boring. That's it. Find something. And then when you think you're going to, you want to stop. All right. I've learned. Go, go further. More. Learn a little more. <laughs> love yeah, it more. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and love it more than it deserves to be loved, which is, I think, what every fan knows. Yeah. Like of anything. Like that's what fandom is. It's loving something more than it deserves to be loved. And in any relationship, if both sides hold that ideal, it'll probably work out. It'll be great. I love you more than I love you, you more to... than you deserve to be loved. Like ha isn't that how we if all want to be loved? Side, if only one side No, it doesn't that. work. If, yeah, you, if yeah. only one side does that, that's <laughs> called codependency. If both sides do that, then you have a really exciting wonderful life together where you both get loved more than you deserve. Elizabeth Gilbert is the author of The Signature of All Things and Eat Pray Love. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Mike. It was super fun. From here to eternity. A love so true It never would die You gave your lips Gave them so willingly And now the spiel. Front page of the New York Times today has a story about government regulating cigarettes. And doing so is when the government regulates anything in a big way. They have their own economists do a cost-benefit analysis. So the costs of cigarettes, those are pretty obvious. Cancer, asthma, stinky couches. The benefits, benefits of cigarettes, well, people like to smoke. People gain pleasure from smoking. The government actually puts a dollar value on this. And that got a lot of other economists and tobacco opponents really upset. People like smoking. People are addicted to smoking, they argue. People usually start smoking when they're minors and can't decide what they like. And that's true enough, and maybe that's one reason why cigarettes aren't the best vice to illustrate my point. Maybe e-cigarettes. Maybe those are a better vice. Because e-cigarettes are also up for government regulation. And yes, the government has to do a cost-benefit analysis of them. The cost is some carcinogens, studies show, but a lot less than the on-fire cigarettes bring. And the benefits of e-cigarettes are like the benefits of many other vices. It's not tax revenue. It's not some allowance for human frailty. It's this. Vices are quite often very fun. When governments have a vote to, say, allow a casino, there's usually a debate, right? And the debate goes like this. The upside is tax revenue and job creation. The downside is addicted gamblers. But what about pleasure? How come no one says, I stand today before you to support gambling? Because gambling's fun, damn it. It's a goddamn rush to pull an ace on the river to make your straight. I have no idea why Foghorn Leghorn or Yosemite Sam would hold that position, though they probably would. Let's take the time when my wife, my then wife, was pregnant, then pregnant. I did a lot of research into alcohol and fetuses. And let me tell you what her obstetrician told her. I wouldn't drink. This guy was a guy, so he's also never been pregnant. But if you do a deep dive into the effects of alcohol on fetuses, you find overwhelming evidence that too much is very, very bad. Fetal alcohol syndrome, low birth weight, terrible, terrible side effects. So how about drinking in moderation? 
The truth is we don't know. There have been few surveys on the effects of very light drinking in the health outcome on fetuses and children. And what the studies that do exist show, for the most part, is little correlation between very light drinking and a healthy baby. However, doctors, paternalistic doctors, say, why risk it? Why bother? What's the benefit? The answer is pleasure. It's nice to have a drink or two every week. That's all. I remember in researching this, I came across a website from England, might have been Australia, I can't remember, and it was talking about drinking while pregnant. And the recommendations in the UK at that time did not include total abstinence from drinking while pregnant. But then later that year, the government, following advice from the British Medical Association, changed its stance and did recommend total abstinence during pregnancy. But that advice lasted only one year. And then the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence came in and said there was no good evidence that one or two drinks a week was harmful. In fact, the University of London found that children of mothers who drank lightly during pregnancy had fewer behavioral or developmental problems than those whose mothers abstained completely. And I think this has something to do with the broader issue of pleasure and pregnant women. Those words seldom go together. Of course, what we are told now as parents to tell our children is don't be negative, don't just be restrictive. Here's bad parenting advice. Don't run, don't yell, don't be rude. That's not what to say. Give them goals to strive for. Say, do walk carefully. Do use an inside voice. Do say please and thank you. But when it comes to moms, it's all don't drink alcohol. Don't drink coffee. Don't use hair products. Because the underlying philosophy is something like, well, what's the point? What good could come of it? Pleasure. Pleasure. Pleasure can come from it. I've never been pregnant. Probably never will be. But it seems to me that the message given to pregnant women is something like, this is a wondrous journey that you'll look back on fondly. Now, here's a huge list of what not to do. And a bunch of things on the list are just there because we assume that they might be bad. Of course, they might not be bad, but it doesn't matter because your desires are immaterial here. So I take pleasure into account. And by the way, with pregnant women, like just relaxing and not being so uptight, that actually might have a good physiological effect. That's my theory anyway. But I take pleasure into account. Drinking seems pleasurable. Gambling is pleasurable. Well, the winning part of gambling is pleasurable. So what vice haven't I thought of yet? Oh yeah, sex. So let's talk about unprotected sex. I assume that the government researchers will be issuing cost-benefit analysis regarding unprotected sex. Well, the costs, we know the costs, STDs and pregnancy, unwanted pregnancy. But the benefit is You know, sex. People like sex. It is popular all over the world. So here's where safe sex comes in. There's no such thing as safe gambling. Moderate drinking isn't exactly safe drinking, right? Just ask an alcoholic. But with sex, you could have this thing called protected sex. It used to be called safe sex. Now it's called safer sex. Safe, safer, protected sex, whatever you want to call it. It screws with the cost-benefit analysis. The costs go drastically down, but the benefits stay almost the same. I mean, at worst, the difference between protected sex and unprotected sex is like the difference between a slice of Elio's pizza from the freezer and a slice of Grimaldi's pizza from the brick oven. It's still basically cheese and tomatoes and crispy bread. So what I'm saying is that Elio's pizza is really just pizza with a condom. Put that on the box. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that protected sex is a lot like, to bring it back to cigarettes, e-cigarettes, where the whole damn thing started. That's like the safe sex of smoking. It has costs, it has benefits, and if used correctly, you can smoke them safely in bed as soon as you're done with the deed. The deed being, of course, eating a pizza.
And that's it for today's show. The benefit of Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcast, is a keen ear, an astute mind, and a tireless work ethic. The cost is that her mom fast-forwards to the credits and misses the best part of the show. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, benefit, wisdom, cost, garden variety, vegan preachiness. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. Give us a review in iTunes. Here's a four-star review I thought was fair. Pesca lets it all loose in each and every episode, which is the problem. Not every topic under discussion is entitled to breathless announcing. Not every guest is scintillating. My suggestion is that he modulate his vocal style ever so slightly. That's good. If I could do it, I would. We're on Facebook.com. Twitter feed is Slate Gist. To sign up for the daily newsletter that hits your inbox the moment the show is live, go to slate.com slash gist email and email us directly at thegist at slate.com. Benefits of the gist provides interesting information about little covered corners of the world. Cost convinced you that bringing up Botswana's economic policy in mixed company was a socially advantageous gambit. All dinner party guests slowly backed away before you can even shout, thanks for listening.